Diddy bread. Yeah. You know what's sweaty and disgusting and warm? I don't know. <laughs> my, my, my feet in a pair of Sperry's yeah. during the summer. That sounds about right. Because there's no like ventilation or anything. True. So I walk around in the 117 degree weather here in Greenville. Mm-hmm. Maybe a light jog after a certain somebody who won't sit still. <laughs> and then it feels like I stepped in a bunch of slime. Yes. You know why that is? Why is that? Because I'm wearing Sperry's. Sperry's. Yeah. Right. Not really your best option during the summer. <laughs> they don't make any that are more breathable that have like holes in them. And Maybe, stuff. but they probably don't look very good. Oh, okay. So what I would suggest mm-hmm. is putting those mugs away mm-hmm. until like October. Okay. Right. When it gets a little cooler around here and just go to the flip flops. So you think shoes that are called top siders are a fall and winter shoe? Yeah. And spring. Just don't want a sweaty foot swamp in there. So not summer shoes at all. No, not really. Not even if you're on your boat. But if, no. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but if you would like to get some and you'd be prepared for fall, you go to woo-woo-woo.sperry.com. Oh, that's not how you pronounce it. And you could stock up now for later. Sounds good. Good. Welcome to Explain Yourself, the podcast where anyone can attempt to explain anything. Uh, we're back in the studio today. We're very excited to be here. Michael Blum, introduce our guest. Yes, this is my homeboy, Jeremy Franz. Uh, Jeremy and I know each other from jujitsu, and he's sort of in the process of ingratiating himself into our circle of Explain Yourself luminaries here. I'm very excited about that. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks. Jeremy brings to us something that none of the other guests have really had. One Which is? One is, is constantly beating me up. <laughs> I don't know. Ben does that. All right. So that's not unique. Um, <laughs> but the other thing we haven't really discussed in our many sort of ideas and iterations is the value of the outdoors. Yes. Um, Jeremy is the consummate outdoorsman. Is he? Right. Awesome. Is he guys fair, Jeremy? Yeah, that's fair. Um where not only is it a sort of like a hobby for you, but it's like a lifestyle. Like you are a person of the outdoors. For sure. It is definitely a lifestyle. And it ranges from what you do. Like in your free time, it's kind of a hobby, but you're also a person of the outdoors at work. Yes. So uh, in my professional life, I'm a geologist. Um, I don't do as much field work as I used to, but I chose geology due to the field work. And then um, I was on track to be a professional outdoor uh, educator for a while, but student loans took over. So mm-hmm. it's geology. Yes. So. Um, geology, as Sarah knows, is the study of angles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's not. It's a, I've, I've been working on that joke all day. Um, you nailed it. Yeah, it was really, Absolutely it was nailed really it. good and unscripted. Um, yeah, so why don't you talk about sort of how you get to this point, right? You At some point, you have to decide that, like, I'm going to be a geologist and an outdoor person. How do you start with college? You start with high school? Or before that, yeah. Or even before that. Yeah, sure. honestly, it, it really started way before that. Uh, my family has a history of motorcycle racing at a very high level. Ooh. My dad is very passionate about motorcycles even to this day. 
And um, I never raced motorcycles, but I was on a motorcycle as soon as I was old enough. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So when I was a little kid, uh, we used to work on really old motorcycles, and we spent more time working on them than, than riding them for the most part. Right. But when, uh, when I was old enough, we started getting motorcycles that we didn't have to work on as much, and we would ride more, and we would go to, uh, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we would go to Southern Ohio, Wayne National Forest, or we go to Allegheny National Forest in Pennsylvania, and we go riding. And some of my best experiences as a kid were riding trails with my dad on motorcycles. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what really kind of motorcycles did you have? Um, I had a KT. Uh, the last one I had was a KTM EXC three hundred, mm-hmm. and then he uh, he had a KTM EXC two fifty, which are like. They're, they look like motocross bikes, yeah. Uh, but it, they have a headlight and a taillight on them. They're, they're made for going fast down trails. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was picturing. Yeah. It was like dirt, a dirt bike. Yeah, it's a, yeah, a dirt bike. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's cool. So um, we would spend uh, many weekends going to Pennsylvania camping, cooking in the parking lot, you know, riding all day, eating lunch in the parking lot, riding through the afternoon, cooking dinner, and then riding into the night, too. Dude, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So that's... That's where I found that you can do some really cool things in the outdoors. Um, I'm still passionate about riding on two wheels, uh, except now I ride mountain bikes. Right. Um, and that's mainly because in college I had to get rid of my motorcycle because I just didn't have anywhere to put it for a long time. Right. Sure. And then uh, when we came down to Greenville, I found mountain biking. But uh, so I think that's I was thinking about this a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks. And I, I really think that's that's where it started. Um, I also was in the Boy Scouts uh, for a little while, and uh, that's where I was introduced to rock climbing. Mm. Um, and it actually, there was a few years after the first time I went rock climbing. It was in an indoor gym called Kendall Cliffs, and uh, it's it's still there to this day. But uh, I went climbing with my friend Chris uh, in the Boy Scouts, and it was just awesome. I was in awe of the place they have. Right when you walk in, they have, uh, it's probably a... It's 45 foot tall ceilings and they have this route that goes up one side of the wall across the ceiling and then down the wall. And I saw that. I was like, man, I I really want to do that one day. And then a couple of years went by and I never went rock climbing. And my friend Lillian came by and she uh, her uncle was into climbing just a little bit. And it was enough to uh, where it piqued our interest. And uh, we ended up going and then. Like my dad, I'm very passionate about everything. My wife would say I'm obsessed when I when I get into things, and uh, I just started rock climbing every day. Uh, started getting my own equipment. Uh, eventually, I was able to scale that arch, which was which was pretty cool. And uh, I ended up moving uh, onto outdoor climbing. Sure. Did you ever been rock climbing? No. Wait. Maybe. I'm trying to remember. If I have, it's been like. You know, at a camp like Camp Greenville, sure, it wasn't there. I feel like I've done it at least one time, but yeah, no heights. Heights are a thing for me, man. How about you? Yeah, I tried it once, recently, and I was like, recently, where? Like actually, Camp Greenville, Camp Greenville. I was with the kids, yeah, nice. And they have like a little climbing wall there, and you know, it's nothing tremendous, but mm-hmm. I was like, eh, whatever. And then I got up there. I was like, "This is awesome." Oh, you you enjoyed it. It was it was awesome. Good. I almost made it all the way to the top. Did you? If I had been a little wiser in my route planning, yeah, which I had no route planning. I didn't know that was a thing until after route planning. Like, like, you should figure out what you're doing ahead of time. No, no, no. You should I, go up, man. I, no. I, did, well, that's what I, <laughs> I know that's what I think. And the guy was giving the kids his like introduction. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "It's mostly in your legs," and I was like, "Oof." Oh. 
Because my plan was just to pull myself up. <laughs> like It sounds just, like the way to get real tired real fast. Yeah. Well, luckily, he told us you use your legs. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. So mm-hmm. I was like six mm-hmm. feet from the top, probably. And then yeah. I just lost my balance. So I think this is a lot of fun and has a lot of potential to be really great exercise. For so sure. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So um, once I found climbing, I started doing that uh, throughout high school. I also liked to snowboard when I was in high school, too. And one of my first jobs was a snowboard instructor. Right. So nice. I would instruct during the day and then I go rock climbing at night um, at, at the gym. And uh, and once I, I moved to college, I, I started finding a, a community that uh, was I started surrounding myself with people that really enjoyed rock climbing. Um, I went to college in Columbus, Ohio. The Red River Gorge uh, is where we spent most of our weekends. And that was probably about four or five hours away. But uh, almost every weekend we would drive that four or five hours yeah. on Friday night and come back on Sunday night. Whew. And uh, that's why I really first uh, found a community of outdoorsy people that shared the yeah. same passion. That I, I was going to ask about the community. Did you just like bump into these people doing the same things? Yes. Or okay. So uh, my, I distinctly remember my first day of college. I was visiting my advisor, and there was a, a guy named Max Siegel who was also had the same advisor. And uh, I believe I had a, a bouldering competition uh, T-shirt on and. Uh, bouldering for people that don't know is uh it's it's rock climbing at uh, low heights maybe like 10 feet or less uh, sometimes a little bit taller Uh, but the idea is to do the single most difficult move that you can do uh, at a low height so they used to use it for practicing for scaling larger walls and then it became its own sport gotcha they have competitions for it but okay so i was wearing a t-shirt and uh, he just came up to me and asked if I liked to rock climb. He ended up being from Colorado and, uh, you know, kind of what just went on from there. Um, so. So we credit Max Siegel with getting you into this. Yep. Okay. Yep. Sweet. <laughs> so. Often I will see, like, when, when I look at colleges or whatever, that there are outdoor clubs. Do you ever fall into one of these? Yes. So uh, the college I went to is Ohio Wesleyan University, and they had two clubs. Um, they had a, a rock climbing club. Which uh, we mostly, uh, I don't think we ever did trips through the rock climbing club. We would just go to the local rock climbing gym on like Tuesdays or Thursdays. And uh, um, that was a great way to get people introduced into rock climbing. Sure. And then we had uh, OMT, which was the outdoor ministry team. And uh, I am not a particularly religious person, mm-hmm. but I joined OMT because... Um, it was outdoors. Because it was outdoors. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. they would put on these phenomenal trips every spring break. They were able to get the university to fund a lot of the trips. So for like $250, you could go to Joshua Tree, California Dude. for a week. Dude. Yeah. Are you serious? I'm yes. in. And yeah. they, would, they would like cover your plane flight for $250? Yes. That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Um, not only that, they did uh, trips to the Florida Everglades, like canoeing through the Everglades. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. They did uh, backpacking in Canyonlands in Utah. Um, another trip we did was in uh, uh, Horseshoe Canyon Ranch in Arkansas. That's another rock climbing destination. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Joshua Tree, California is a rock climbing destination, too. Um, so the first couple of years that I was part of this group, um, I was just a participant, and then I eventually started leading the trips, and that's what got me interested in outdoor education. But, yeah. Um, can you describe... Jeremy and I were just discussing this before we came in here. Like, what it is to be in a community that is centered around, like, kind of a niche sport. And, like, A, what a privilege it is, and B, 
like what it's actually like on the day to day. Most people don't have this opportunity in life, so it's worth a description, I think. Yeah, that's a bit of a tough description. I think it's like any clique that you're a part of. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people um, might not have the sense of community that you would have with jujitsu or rock climbing sure. uh, in that sense, but they do with like their own family, and I think that's probably a good way to describe it. Um, you're, you immediately have a connection with people, which mm-hmm. breaks a lot of barriers, mm-hmm. and so you can get into some pretty cool conversations quickly. Right. And uh, I think that's one of the the uh the best parts of being part of that community Mm -hmm. um you also have dozens of people that share that same passion as you do yeah and it's interesting what's always been interesting to me is it like breaks down the getting to know you process to like it makes it like almost instant right where you don't have that like kind of like i don't know if i text this person maybe i'm being a little too forward (laughs) maybe i'm the only one who goes through this right no i think you're absolutely right blum the the times in my life where i've done like you know we've done like ropes courses at you know youth group events and that kind of thing and i think it does have a way of kind of grabbing everybody's attention getting your mind off of like you know, you're worried about, oh, did my did I do my hair right this morning? All the girls are worried about what they look like and the guys are worried about impressing the girls because they're teenagers. This is just what they do. Yes. And I think once you get involved with something like we're all in this like, you know, whatever situation where we have to climb from here to here and there's just there's nothing else that you can pay attention to in that moment. Right. So I think that's cool. And I, I think there is some kind of bond through struggle. Mm. For sure. Right. And like, I think the word struggle can be greatly exaggerated because rock climbing is not, you know, you're not stuck in a war torn country. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's right. relative. But, but yes. I think it still applies. That term sure. still applies. There's definitely a mental struggle when it comes to rock climbing. I mean, it's beautiful. And the movement is, can be very aesthetic. And when sure. you're hanging on the side of a cliff, you know you're experiencing something that very few people experience. But, you know, there are times when you're, you can push 50, even 100 foot falls. And that's a very tough mental struggle mm. that you have to stay in mm. uh, focus. Yeah. Um, and even when that my one experience, like when I started to get to the top of the wall, even though I was perfectly safe and harnesses and... What are they Who called? was on belay for you, Michael Blum? Uh, the camp counselor. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. I was another, like, tell like me it wasn't fully... one of those silly next kids. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I like another fully competent adult. You know what I mean? Like, all right, I'm like 22 feet in the air. This yeah. is getting a little bit real up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I fell, like for the first, I don't know, eighth of a second, like, oh, poop. <laughs> and then the thing like snaps into and place. Then it's fine. You, and then yeah. you're just going down. And then down. you're fine. Yep. Yeah. Um, but that is something that pushes a little bit of struggle on you, I think. Yes. Yeah. So I would have trouble thinking of a best friend that I did not have uh, some sort of struggle like that, whether it's through jujitsu, rock climbing, whitewater kayaking, mountain biking. Mm-hmm. All of those mm-hmm. friends have been on some sort of journey with me where I had to push my limits. We both pushed past it and mm-hmm. that really formed a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I dig it. I wonder, and Diddy Bird, you're going to have to weigh in here. Is there oh, well. a gender specific component to this? I was just thinking about that and thinking about are my relationships that way? I think I think you have to have, if you're going to have a real relationship, you have to have vulnerability and maybe 
maybe it's easier for guys to do vulnerability through physical struggle versus like emotional (laughs) struggle do you know what i mean (laughs) because in a way it is emotionally like there's emotional connections to going through physical struggle yeah sure um so i don't know maybe there is a gender i always learned growing up and maybe this is one of those things that like you you learn along the way and then probably research tests out that's not true right is that women bond through talking Mm. and like sharing feelings and men bond through doing that's probably an overgeneralization. That's, that's what I was suspicious of. Because I, yeah, I definitely feel like I bond through doing more so than talking, but I want to do both at the same time. <laughs> right. right, right. Yeah. I don't want to do mindless banter, but yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that's something to think about for sure. And that's a lot of the bonding experience is the downtime. Like, for example, in whitewater kayaking in between the rapids yeah. and of the flat water. We often talk about politics, relationships, sure. whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, or when we're climbing up a hill that's not too steep. Uh, uh, yeah, there you go. Like that it. you can actually yeah. breathe and talk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I totally get that. To me, there's something about the outdoors. And Jerry and I have have said this to each other when we've gone a long time without spending like a significant amount of time outdoors, and then we get back out. It's just like oh. There's some refreshing or like resetting aspect to being outdoors. Do you feel like that's true? And if so, like, how does that manifest itself for you? Yes, it definitely does. So one of the best feelings that I routinely get is when I hop in my truck, have like something, kayak, mountain bike or whatever in the back, and I start heading towards the mountains, especially on like a sunrise drive. I get like a surge of dopamine and I just feel... um, like kind of at peace you know yeah and there's that aspect too just um i don't know if it's like you just feel a little smaller and less important and that's that's a relief to me in a way it's like this stuff has been here for centuries and it'll be here after we're gone and it's like there's just something nice and humbling and comforting about that i don't know what do you think michael yeah no i've never thought about that way before honestly because i'm not really an outdoors person um but I find myself with this like strong attraction to mountains. Mm. You know, I love Knoxville. Yeah, you do. And nobody else likes it. Nobody else does. No, that every I'm like, yeah, let's go to Knoxville. It's dope. They're like, uh, it's dope. I don't know enough about it to really knock yeah. it, but yeah, but I like dope. Yeah, <laughs> let's go now. This place is amazing. And what it, I don't, I'm trying to think like how I could describe what it is, mm. but that like there's kind of this mountain charm, and I go there, mm-hmm. and it's like easier to breathe there mm. like cleaner i mm-hmm. guess and if i went knoxville's not all the way up at the top of the mountain or anything but if you went like all the way up to the top i bet that's even better it just feels kind of like i don't know like cleaner and more refreshing i guess is how i put it i think refreshing is a good way to describe it and i have a similar pull to the mountains like uh you know that's one of the big reasons why we moved here is uh, my wife and i we said we would while we're very active we would live in the mountains and then she loves the ocean and so when we retire that's that's our plan is to live near the ocean there you go and was she Uh, active outdoorsy when you met her yes so we we met in college and we grew to know each other through the rock climbing club okay so So, yeah she was on several of the trips that i i led so it's a catalyst for love. That's right. That's right. This community. Meet yeah. your soulmate, yeah. rock yeah. climbing. Well, that's but it, really cool. it sort of makes sense if you think about it, right? Yeah. And like that, if this is a place where people bond quickly, yeah. And there are, you know, ladies and gentlemen, or ladies and ladies and gentlemen and gentlemen, <laughs> whatever you know, whatever your your proclivity is. Sure. Like 
you sh- you could accelerate that bonding process like real quick super fast yeah. compared to like a series of dates right over months right no that's a good point there's so much more you can like see about a person when you're involved in something a little more you know like we have to not only talk but do something right physically and yeah then you, you, you probably have several things in common to get up to that point right, right? exactly exactly i think one of the, the most difficult parts of dating is determined you actually have anything in common with right. this person. Right. And I'm like, well, now I already know I do because I met her at the rock climbing situation. Right, right. right. Okay, speaking of this, this is a good segue because yes. Jer- Jerry wanted me to bring this up. On our first date, camping came up. Okay. And how much he enjoys it. And because it was our first date, I was like, yeah, absolutely, camping, 100%. You, you know, I'm like all camping. in. This is the biggest lie we've ever seen on the show. But it wasn't like it wasn't 100% a lie because I'd grown up camping. Okay. Not like roughing at camping, but you know, like we would, my grandparents had a, had a camper and we would take it to like Drear Island State Park and you know, you're staying near the lake and you've got like, you know, a bathhouse that you can go to with running water in it. And that's the kind of camping I was used to. But anyway, Jerry, Jerry is super into camping and hasn't really had many chances to do it since we got married because i'm so like particular about the camping experience do you did you watch parks and rec no okay well there's a character they all go camping together and there's a character who like has ordered a bunch of stuff from sky mall and he's glamping is what he's saying i'm like i can i can glamp like for sure so jeremy i just wanted your perspective on camping do you guys do that are you a fan how could I be better at camping or roughing it? Ugh, the thought. Just, I can't. What do you think of Diddy Bread's glamping? <laughs> yeah, so as we've gotten older, we do a lot more glamping. So when we would go to the Red River Gorge in college, yeah. there's this place down there called Miguel's Pizza, and you can camp on their property. for oh. It was like $2.50 a night. Amazing. And as a college student, that wasn't expensive, but I had to save up to go camping. <laughs> <laughs> Like, look at the couch cushions. Yep. <laughs> that extra seven fifty a week really killer, huh? Yeah. That's so, awesome. When we moved down here, we stopped camping nearly as much. Yeah. Um, one, because I hate camping when it's hot. Yes. You know, I'll, Same. I'll take winter camping any day over. That's over. But if it's too cold, it's also terrible. I told Jerry this is what yeah. we were just talking about this literally yesterday. I was like, one of the reasons I don't enjoy it is because I, I have to be at a certain temperature to fall asleep and stay mm. asleep. And if it's too warm or too cold... It, yeah. All bets are off. So you have to go in this really small window. I'm like, when is it 64 degrees at night? Yeah. And he was like, October. And I'm like, okay, we can go then. But yeah, I'm with you 100% there. Yeah. So any camping we do now is related to backpacking. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And part of the reason we don't go camping as much is because we have two dogs. And mm, so that's to tough. Dogs. Yeah. 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 So when we go backpacking, we take them with us. And well, and the the other thing is, like, we live in Greenville. You know, we can go hiking literally anytime sure, we want. Pierce Mountain yeah. is literally, Same. I can see it from, from my house. Across the street. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, we don't need to spend the night if we can just go in two hours and come back you know can i ask a woefully stupid question (laughs) what's the difference between backpacking and camping when people say they went backpacking i always thought they were hauling their tents around yeah so it it is camping with a a destination in mind then you move there each night you know like you move to the next destination each. it's like combo camping and and hiking i guess yeah so like as opposed to just finding campground unloading staying right. there the whole time staying, oh, okay. right. So you, right you have limited supplies because you have to carry sure. everything with you 
Um, like, have you ever heard of the Appalachian Trail? Sure, sure, yeah, sure, sure. So that would be backpacking when people hike uh, that. Oh, I see. We just do much shorter durations over like a three day or four day weekend. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's super fun backpacking. Um, but going back to glamping, uh, <laughs> recently we had an awesome experience uh, with our friends uh, Marie and Donovan. Uh, we went to a yurt. Nice. Bryson City, well, time uh, North out. Carolina. Time out. You already know I don't know what a yurt is. Okay. It's like well, a nice tent. Yeah. It's like a teepee. It looks like, it kind of looks like a circus tent. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. But uh, I did not know this until we stayed there, but the it's actually insulated. There's insulation mm-hmm. between the fabric. Oh, that makes sense. And yeah. uh, I mean, this was glamping at its finest. <laughs> granite countertops and hardwood floors. Oh my God. <laughs> See, this is what yeah. I'm down for. So, yeah. But it still felt like you were rustic and you know when you went out to the the patio you had this gorgeous mountain view and you know dude i'm all in for that that's definitely the kind of camping i like yeah for sure well that's you and jerry's next projects is yurting it up oh my gosh we just we need to get out and do the very basic things that we already enjoy doing like we love hiking you know it's just it's too damn hot right now but we love hiking we love being on the lake sure we i think we consider ourselves outdoor people because Growing up, I don't know if this is a culture thing or an era thing or whatever, right. but or an era uh, like a location thing. But Jerry and I both were the the kids who were forced to be outside all the time. Mm-hmm. Like it was literally like get out of the house and don't come back <laughs> until it's dinner right, time. Right. So there was a lot of like neighborhood bike riding or being in the woods and just you know or down at the creek and you know you throwing just, rocks at each other. Exactly. That's what like, kids do is yes. Throw rocks exactly. At each other. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I think. We, we associate so many good, like, positive childhood nostalgia memories with being outside. My mom's parents live, always lived on places that had lots of property and woods, and we would just be out there, and we'd be climbing trees and exploring. And at one point, my grandpa made us go-karts out of, like, lawnmower engines, and That's we would dope. ride around yeah. the woods, and it was so much fun. And, yeah... It, why is it so hard to still be an outdoors person? Yeah. <laughs> I guess, so, you know. Part of the reason I got into mountain, well, I got into mountain biking because it's, it's so common. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I grew up on dirt bikes, right? So, but once I started mountain biking, I had that nostalgic feeling of being yes. a kid, jumping off curbs and things like that. Yeah. Like, Man, this is, I feel like a kid again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it just kept going with it. Right. Right. So how often do you get out there and mountain bike? Maybe three days a week. That's awesome. So, that's, so you go after work. Yeah. I go, I try to go after work and on the weekends. That's and mostly Paris Mountain. Uh, Yes, until a place called Canuga Bike Park opened. That's right. You told me about yeah. this. And that's near the Canuga Camp. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, that place is has some of the best trails I've ever ridden. Um, that's awesome. Paris Mountain is a local gem for sure. Yeah. I We're mean. very lucky to have that. You can't beat being this close to it. Holy cow. Yeah. You can get, awesome. you know, maybe close to 15 miles in if you loop everything correctly yeah which is that's a that's quite a bit for being right downtown absolutely and the other thing is like mountain biking always seemed to me and i don't know how to ride a bike and i've certainly never been mountain biking but fairly low barrier to entry yeah buy a bike maybe do you need a pass to get into paris mountain state yeah. park yep and a way to put it in your car or attach it to your car true and, and then that's it like yeah and that's what else could i possibly need um skills well, yeah, right yeah. <laughs> right but like those it's like anything else yeah 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 you don't start out as an expert i don't think mountain no. biker right 
Um, so sometimes the barrier to entry can be kind of steep, but once you make that initial investment, um, it's minimal. Unlike skiing where you have to have, well, you don't have to have a resort pass if you go backcountry, but most people are going to be going to resorts and spending Mm -hmm. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Whereas like with mountain biking, you buy your bike, you buy $75 or a hundred dollar pass, a year pass to Paris mountain and and that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I was, I was thinking there was fairly low barrier entry, Mm -hmm. but uh, the bikes can get very expensive though. An entry-level bike that is worth taking on a trail, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be around $1,200, <laughs> probably. Sure. What happens so. if you buy a cheap one? Like, I'm going to go get a $500 mountain bike. Uh, well, $500 is still there. Like, Walmart, you're probably looking at, like, 150 or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. Um, they, they get pretty cheap. You're just, uh, you're going to have a hard time. So, the one of the hardest things for uh, a person just getting into mountain biking is actually the climbing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. That, that is, to get in climbing shape is, it takes a while. And yeah. very frustrating. Yeah. And, uh, I've seen them out there on Paris yeah. Mountain. I'm like, dude, I don't feel sorry for you at all. Like, <laughs> good luck for the return trip where you just get to kind of, you know, maneuver and yeah. not push so hard. But, yeah. <laughs> So a a good bike is going to help with the climbing a lot. Yeah. Uh, the Walmart style bikes are going to be very heavy and not pedal very efficiently. Mm. Um, and then as you get more expensive, the bikes get the way bikes are designed They're especially in the past, they were either designed to go downhill really mm-hmm. well or uphill really well. Mm-hmm. And the more expensive bikes now are able to do both almost equally. That's awesome. Yeah. So and I'm assuming they get lighter. Like you can get yeah. a carbon fiber or whatever. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very cool. But so. if you think about it, like $600 over the life of the bike. Right. It's much is, cheaper than a gym membership. Is the, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really that much. Right, no. right. So oh, I think you could be a mountain biker whenever you're ready. Dude. How about Michael Blum become any kind of biker? Michael Blum don't know how to ride a bike. I know. I'm just saying. That, like, that we need change. to remedy that. That's <laughs> <laughs> because Jeremy, last time we hung out, his yeah. eyes, like, when I told him I don't know how to ride a bike. He's horrified. Yeah, he was like, like this is my di- life, dude. Disapp- disappointed in me. <laughs> and then he was like, hey, I'll just, you know, what, what, were you, what was the plan? Like, go to a park and you show me how to do it? Yep, exactly. And then I was like, we'll, we'll as take long the, as I we'll can video it. We'll take the off and we'll get you a little balance bike going. Yeah, we'll get a little balance bike. But I was like, I'm going to get hurt so bad. No, well, maybe, but I mean, doesn't everybody fall off a bike when they start riding? No, you just no. It's common because people don't go fast enough. You just have to pick up enough speed not to fall, Mm -hmm. and people are too scared. They don't go fast enough. That would correct be the opposite of the problem. No, no, no. That's the problem. Is people people are scared and they go slow, and then the bike wobbles and falls. Yeah, you got to go. The easier it is. Mm Hmm. That's, that's actually this, true with a lot of things. <laughs> this sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. Go as fast as you can. Not as fast as you can, but yeah. like a, a decent amount of speed. But that's why I would take the pedals off. That way you can have your feet going on it. Your feet are almost like the training wheels. Yeah. And then. Uh, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's that's how they're teaching kids now. Take uh, the pedals off. Don't yeah. do training wheels. Don't do yeah, training yeah. wheels That makes all. sense to me. Yeah. I, thought, I always thought training wheels were dumb. And I have, I have friends, their kids are riding at like three and four years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. All right, man. You got to rub it in. We'll get you a big wheels, Michael Blum. Yeah, I always wanted. They probably make them for adults. I always wanted one of those beach cruisers, like you see at the beach in California with the three wheels. Listen, (laughs) and I'm with your wife. Like the the beach biking thing is my kind of biking because it's just so flat and like you you know you are putting forth some effort, but it's not like the uphill downhill thing, which is just oh the uphill sucks. It sucks so much. 
So <laughs> e-bikes are actually getting very popular. What they are. What is that? So Electric. It is like a pedal assist bike. Huh. So it, it matches or maybe uh, does a little bit more effort than you for every pedal stroke that mm-hmm. you take. Interesting. Um, they're a little bit controversial because uh, there's potential for access issues because they have a yeah. motor on them. Right. Sure. Um, but Canuga Bike Park's one of the only places around here that allows e-bikes. I don't have an e-bike because they're very expensive. But They are you, expensive, yeah. If you have the money, that can help get you into mountain biking. Interesting. You know? And You're, people use them on the Swamp Rabbit Trail here. I don't think they're supposed to. I think you know, there's signs all over that trail that say no motors, mm-hmm. and technically that's a motor, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> is it, it kind of like it require, on the line? Does it require gas or batteries? A battery. It's a yeah. battery. Well, that, that's definitely a motor. Yeah. 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 Right. So that's so. that's where the problem is. Like right. so some of them have a throttle, some of them are just pedal assist. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. It depends that's on what class it is. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a great way, I think, to get people into mountain biking. Right. And you are putting in effort. Uh, a lot of people have the idea that you're not putting in any effort and it's making it super easy. But mm. you're, you're definitely going to sweat, but yeah, it's uh, it'll get you going. That's awesome. And also, like, if you're not going to be a competitive mountain biker, why would anybody else care? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, like, whatever. Yep. Um, and I, I'm into mountain biking for the fitness and for the fun, you know. So, right. So if you can still get that, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. And when I go to Canuga and the e-bikes are passing me up, it really makes me want to get one. Right? <laughs> Damn it. One day. What one day. It, what does an e-bike run me? Um, well, the ones that I'm looking at, Three like grand. a similar spec no, the similar specced one like yeah. uh, to my bike would run about $13,000. Oh, wow. Okay. Yup. Yeah. They're, they're very expensive. That's extremely expensive. So, hmm. Because they, the frames have to be built to, well, one, they have the bat, the batteries are now being integrated into the frames. So sure. They don't even really look like it. Sure. And then yeah. everything's got to be made heavier, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because mm-hmm. like, the an e-bike will probably run about 50 pounds, whereas uh, uh, like my style bike, which I have a, like a big bike that's made for jumping and stuff, is, is around 30 pounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... Very so Jeremy, cool. you, you go through all of these things and you, you headed towards outdoor education. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. What, what was the plan? Yeah, so uh, I was in college. Uh, I was always a science major. First it was biology and environmental studies and then I went into geology. But uh, I had a mentor in college. His name was Ryan. And uh, he, he was the um university staff for to lead the outdoor ministry team sure and so and he was super influential in uh how i approached the outdoors um and then also he was encouraging me to get into outdoor education sure and so he um when he left ohio wesleyan university he went and started uh, or became the director of Black Mountain Expeditions, which was a spinoff, I guess you could say, of a camp that's up in Black Mountain, North Carolina, okay. called Camp Timberlake and Merrimack. And uh, so he was able to help me get a job up there. And I was what was called trip staff. And it was the coolest job in the world. I, I lived at the camp um, and I just took campers off site every day. So every day I was mountain biking, kayaking, rock climbing, Dude. hiking. And that, that was my job. That's and, the life. Yeah. And it was it was so cool. It was from like, we called them Tweedles. They were like kindergarten age. Oh, all the way up to like Tweedles. Yeah, <laughs> up to like 17 year olds. Right. And, and one of my coolest experiences was taking, I think they must have been eight or nine years old, a group of like four or five boys. We went to Max Packs and we, and we went backpacking. And, and I say that in quotes because, you know, we hiked maybe a mile. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had dinner up on top of Max Patch. And then we went to our campsite 
and we made everyone got sick off s'mores. Sure, and then sure. We went back the next day. Home that's, run. Okay. Yeah, that's the best uh, thing you can do for an eight or nine. Good old fashioned yep. fun. And they had backpacks, but they might have had a sweatshirt in them, you know. So. Yeah, <laughs> it was super fun. There's this thing about outdoor education that I love, which is that it, and I didn't know this until I got older, but I feel like there's this, there's this whole philosophy behind, behind outdoor education that is like, this is, this is kind of a great equalizer for a lot of like students from many different backgrounds. It's like you get them outside and something is just different about that type of education. Like it just has the potential to engage kids in a way that really you can't do just in a classroom, right? Do you, have you experienced that? Yes. So I would almost equate it to kind of like jujitsu where you can't, um, you can't fake anything while you're right. out there. Like, right. Right. Whether you're, you know, on a hike and you're having trouble going up a hill or it starts raining, there's, there's almost always going to be some sort of little struggle unless it's like the perfect day right. on a short hike. Right. You know? And so like people are able to look inward on themselves mm. and, you know, maybe they're feeling a certain way and they would normally act this way, but they're around this group and it starts to, maybe they start to realize that that's not an appropriate way to act. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, with outdoor education, a lot of it, uh, a lot of programs are for at risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are amazing programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, another part of the journey for outdoor education is I did a NOLS course, which is the National Outdoor Leadership School. And that was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Uh, I took a semester off college. It was basically my, my study abroad. Mm. And uh, for four months, we uh, so I did one month of mountaineering. And then I did uh, another month of canoeing and kayaking down the Green River in Utah, which is uh, very similar to kayaking through the Grand Canyon. Uh, and That's then we awesome. did some backpacking. We did a oh. month long backpacking in Kenya, in Kenyan lands. That sounds oh. unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah, it, was, it was awesome. And, and it wasn't just about, uh, doing those things, but it was about, uh, looking at yourself as a leader and growing as a yeah. leader. So, yeah. uh, you know, we had all sorts of tasks and things like that sure. while, we were, while we were out there. Sure. And you, do you consider taking this on as a career? Like you could be the... I did for a long time, um, uh, all the way up until my senior year of school. And then I started realizing that uh, I was not a responsible 18-year-old and I took out many, many student loans. <laughs> <laughs> and, We've all been uh, there, man. Yep. And I had to start paying those back. So um, I even to this day, like as a early retirement or something like that, I would love to do some sort of guiding or you know something like that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I love teaching. Yeah. So what does your job entail now? Like what, what's your day to day look like? So my day to day, I work at home and I worked at home prior to the pandemic too. Mm. Um, so with geology, you have staff that acquire data and those are usually your field staff and that's how the career typically starts out. And then you have staff that uh, evaluate the data and write reports. Okay. And, and that is my day to day is the evaluation of the data and writing reports. So I'm a bedrock geologist. Uh, and, and I work in the environmental field. So I look at how uh, groundwater and contaminants are moving through the subsurface oh. so we can intercept them and, and remediate it. Um, there's some really cool ways that we remediate it. Like your, um, your traditional method is to pump it out of the ground and treat it uh, like a wastewater treatment. Yeah, plant. yeah. Sure. But then there's also uh, in-situ remediation, which means in the ground, um, and we'll inject... Uh, benign things like molasses and oh. there's naturally occurring organisms in the ground that break down contaminants like uh, that you find in gasoline or uh, TCE is a solvent that's really common and these little bugs 
um, they they eat the carbon source that we give them. Mm-hmm. So they're already down there. They just proliferate, and then their waste products react with the contamination and huh. it turns oh. it into uh, innocuous. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's That's, super cool. That is a really clever way to handle things. Yeah, yeah. You never think like, boy, there's a bunch of gas in the ground. Let's get some molasses going. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You know? Yeah. That's, oh, that's so interesting. Glad we have smart folks out there thinking yeah. about these problems. And you also do train site crashes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, part of my job is uh, train derailments. I mostly work for uh, CSX. It's never. N- not in awe when you go uh, on yeah. a train derailment. Uh, it's got to be. I've never been on a train derailment. It's got to be unbelievably like carnagey. It is. Like Sometimes the, they they get they're just huge. Um, mm-hmm. I've never. I've been on a couple where they've spilled. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of an acid or something like ooh, that. But ooh, I've never ooh. been on one where there's been like a huge fire or anything like that. Oh, that's good. Um, but it amazes me how much effort. Uh, like these large train companies put into these derailments because they lose a ton of money. I'm sure. Rails are down. And uh, what's the main th- cause of train derailments? Do you know? Um, I wouldn't say. I've been on a a, a lot of them. Some of them are vandalism. Um, oh. So, yeah. So one time someone drove a bulldozer onto the track and the train just hit left that. it there. Yep. Like on purpose to derail the train. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Uh, Hope they're in jail. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, there was another one. Uh, I think it was Hurricane Irene that came through mm-hmm. and dumped all that wa- uh, rain on Charlotte. Uh, so there was a big landslide. Yeah, yeah that'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah, that was one of the more difficult ones I've been on. Not because there was a lot of contaminants, but it was logistically. And I don't deal with the recovery of the trains, right? But logistically, that was really difficult. I bet. Yeah. How do you get a train back on a track yeah. if it's like over there? Yep. Yeah. Do you use one of those giant tow trucks? Well, they have. So I, I don't. I no. Yeah. Those things are so <laughs> that's He's a multitasker, this right. Jeremy. <laughs> um, so my primarily jo- my primary job when I'm on a derailment is to, you know, if there's a contaminant that's been released, figure out how much where it's going, and then be kind of a consultant uh, between CSX and the EPA or the state. Um, but the cranes that they use to pick up those locomotives are amazing. Yeah. Um, they're specifically designed to pick up locomotives. Oh, they wow. okay. Move, Ooh. Yeah, they can move in very uh, odd ways for a crane. You know, they can go forwards, backwards, side to side. Um yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but uh, for those of that that are interested, look up Crane Masters. They have a really cool business. That, oh, that's uh, okay. I was picturing that as like a reality show, like yeah. Crane Masters, <laughs> where they have a crane contest. Yeah. So you act as a consultant between CSX and the the EPA. Who actually does the like? All right, now we've got to get some molasses in the ground. Who's going to put the molasses and you know go out there and physically do it? Yeah. So. Um, on a train derailment, uh, we have CSX has contractors for almost every phase of the work. Okay. Um, so they they would have a company like Hepico or Clean Harbors or something like that uh, to do that type of work. Sure. Um, on a uh, legacy site, which is a lot of what I work on, like uh-huh. a, an old uh, a release that occurred maybe in the seventies, and we're still dealing with it. Jeez, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of times we will self-perform that work. We'll have people at Arcadis that do it. Um, sometimes we'll we'll have contractors do it, though. Sure. 
And that's crazy to think about. There was very little environmental regulation in the 1970s. Right. And, and this is before kind of like that's the end or the middle of the 1970s is often seen as like the birth of the environmental movement. Right. That's where the Clean Water Act started. Yeah. Clean Water yeah. Act and this kind of stuff. But prior to that, if I ran, let's just say I made a, I had a flooring production plant, I could just take whatever and dump it wherever I wanted pretty much. Yeah. Um, I, there's sites that I've worked on where um, companies would dig a trench and pour all their chemicals in that trench until it didn't accept any more chemicals, cover it up, and dig a new one. Why don't the chemicals go anywhere? Uh, eventually, you just saturate the ground too much. Okay. And, so, you know. But like in the 40 years in between then and now, like they don't evaporate. Well, so no, so now they're in, uh, usually they're in one of the top layers of groundwater. So, you know, uh, we're not generally not affecting drinking water. Yeah. Uh, the drinking water wells, just so people don't get nervous. They're usually much, much deeper. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so generally people think of groundwater as like an underground river. Right. Um, and it's not qu- like that. Right. Um, unless you're in what, like a karst environment, which is like a limestone in say, uh, Florida where you get sinkholes and caves, oh. yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. that's when you start getting those underground rivers. So you can think of, uh, an aquifer is like a sandbox full of water and it takes a long time for that water to move through that sand. Oh, I see. And so, oh, oh, I see. When you, especially sense. when you start putting clay and silt in there, and it just binds up. So it, huh. it takes a long time. And that's part of my job is to figure out how long it's going to take. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So you'll have something from the 70s that's only moved, you know, five. 100 to 1,000 feet down gradient, depending what? on... That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. That's insane. And that also makes it difficult to clean up. You know, yeah. Like that. yeah. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. So I imagine it's all still concentrated there. Yep. And it can be bound up in certain materials that when you clean up the uh, available chemicals that you can get, you'll get what's called, like, back diffusion, and it'll just keep, you know, just keep coming in. Oh, my gosh. Lower. So, so it, can, it can take a while. Ugh. This is the kind of stuff that people don't think about. Like we, we just drink our water and we don't think about <laughs> all the work that yeah. it takes to like get my water bottle filled up with drinkable water. We had the Rewa lady come to next one time, and that was fascinating. I don't even know what is Rewa. Oh, it's the Greenville Water Treatment. I don't remember Isn't what it? it stands for, but yeah, it's the Greenville Water Treatment Services. Oh, okay. So they're located over by Congaree. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we have some really good drinking water here. We like do. Greenville has really good water. Some of the so best in the country. Thanks for doing what you do. Yes. <laughs> Keep doing yeah. it. That's right. Jeremy's keeping us safe here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. What are our final thoughts about the outdoors? My final thoughts? Yes. The outdoors rule. How do we get you to be more of an outdoorsman, Michael Blum? Uh, drag me. Drag you? <laughs> I think it's... It's unfortunate that the way things have unfolded for me, that all of my things involve being indoors. All of your things. Yeah, like all the things. I, I mean, I know you can technically read outside. You can, yes. And you could type outside as well, but it's not really <laughs> being in the outdoors. You're just changing. You know what I mean? Do you think that like an outdoor experience, a regular outdoor experience might help you become a better reader or writer? Oh, probably. But just a matter of like, and this is the the brutal truth of adulthood is like I formed my habits. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? 
and now like it would take quite a oh a pull would it yeah you're, you're 41 mm. you're not like solidified yet i'm pretty solidified <laughs> unfortunately and this is not something i'm like proud of like a pull yeah, like sure. a, a pandemic hey something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. or have having a, a daughter now yes who well, should spend time outside well with her daddy we spend time outside but it's okay. not like we go into the woods we go to the playground i'll tell you what walk we have a pass and i know jeremy has a pass like let's just go to paris mountain sure we could mm-hmm. we take all that stuff that'd be fun yeah i'm in and one of the things that i was thinking about when i was preparing for this is uh, i think it can be intimidating talking to somebody who uh is an is as involved in the outdoors as I am, like you don't have to be all in, right? You don't got to you know? get to Jeremy's level. Yeah, you can, <laughs> right. No, you can, you can just take a walk and maybe go a little bit longer than you originally planned. There you go. You know? Sure. That's my issue is pushing myself. I'll go to Paris mountain and I'll hike up to the dam and I'll be like, well, that was great. And I'll turn around and come back. Whereas like back in the day I could do like miles long hikes and there are plenty of loops there that you can do that would take you like, half the day or you know like most of the morning and it's like why don't i just set aside time for that i would feel amazing i think but jeremy final thoughts anything the folks should know i think people should spend more time outdoors and i think the pandemic showed us that Mm. Uh, yeah the outdoor areas blew up during the pandemic they did they really did yeah okay you want to do some plugs uh where should people follow you if they want to see your adventures Maybe they want a piece of your woodworking. Sure. Uh, they can follow me on Instagram at uh, mountainbound87. It's mtnbound87. Or uh, mountainbound woodworks. Nice. On Instagram. All right. Do you, Brad, do you want to plug some social media stuff? Our, our people know where to find us, right? Explain underscore yourself. Right. Instagram and Twitter. Right. The account that Muscle Hamster runs all by himself. No, no. Does a stand-up job. It's not all by myself. I mean, it's mostly you. Sometimes it's me. Yeah. But I reply. Oh, absolutely he does. Yep. You can interact with us there. Yeah. We we still have the Facebook group called Splainers. Which we haven't redone. I don't care for for that name. (laughs) Uh, What else we got? Oh, I got one more thing. Yes. Heidi Three Bands. Yeah, let's plug Heidi Three Bands. No, no, we're not going to plug Heidi Three Bands. Oh, we're not plugging No, we're certainly not. What are we doing? Because I issued the ping pong challenge. Oh, no response. Crickets. That means she's scared. I believe so. (laughs) So, and also, the other thing I believe is that Heidi hasn't been listening. I was going to say, I don't think she knows that there is a ping pong challenge. Right. That has been issued. No. Okay. So, why did she stop listening? I don't know. That's she's not, really busy with her three bands. I know she's very busy with her three <laughs> bands. But like, you think I wasn't going to say anything? What do you mean? Did After you, she said she was going to beat me up. Like, you think I was not going to come back right, and right, to you? Right. I think you're going to have to do some direct communication with Heidi and, and hope, you know. Hope she doesn't beat me up. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. <laughs> now uh, you're scared. Yeah. I'm a little scared. <laughs> uh, but that also, nothing has happened on that front. Okay. So. All right. Um, you ready? Oh, to wrap it up? Are you ready to wrap yes, it up? Yes, what's our, what's our final thought, Michael Blum? Our final thought is uh, go outside and always be ready to explain yourself. Boom, that's there it. There you go. Love it. Love it.